This is Rachel Fields and Jean Delcourt with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The first F-35 fighter jet will arrive tomorrow at Trex Fields National Guard Base in Madison, with 19 more to arrive over the next year, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The sighting of uh, F-35s has met with steep local resistance due to the prospect of noise pollution that will affect more than 1,000 homes in the city, including mine. The move to cite F-35s in Madison has been a bipartisan effort with both Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin and Republican Senator Ron Johnson applauding the decision. A new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum found that Wisconsin is slightly above average in its public funding for colleges and universities. Digging into the numbers, however, reveals a story of split priorities. The report reveals that Wisconsin is the fifth highest state in public funding it spends on two-year public colleges, primarily through the technical college system that receives its funding locally. Meanwhile, Wisconsin is lagging in public funding for four-year universities, ranking 43rd nationally. That is because the University of Wisconsin system relies on funding from the state level, which has not yet been forthcoming. Meanwhile, enrollment in public universities is shrinking across much of the state, with only University of Wisconsin-Madison and Green Bay campuses seeing an increase in number of students. The Dane County Board approved an additional $13.5 million towards the funding of a new jail on Thursday. This brings the total funding to nearly $180 million following months of political wrangling and widespread resistance to the jail project, according to the NBC15. The funding approval comes after the county sheriff reached a deal with the board's Black Caucus securing the final votes needed to fund the project. The planned jail would be six stories and have 825 beds and would replace the jail in the city-county building and the work release facility at the Ferris Center. The former chairman of the Wisconsin Parole Commission was charged last week for public corruption, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. John Tate II, who had served in the Evers administration before being asked to resign last year, was president of the Racine Common Council when it created the position of Violence Interruption Coordinator. Tate later accepted a job for the position he helped create, which violates Wisconsin law, according to the charges. Tate had previously accepted the position of Madison's independent police monitor before turning that job down to accept the position that he had voted to allocate funds for while serving on Racine's Common Council. If convicted, Tate could face up to three years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Madison's City Bar on State Street has agreed to pay a $15,000 fine following a police raid last year that found the bar had served more than 100 underage drinking drinkers in a single night. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that of the 143 patrons of the bar that night, only six were legally of drinking age. And City Bar was the only bar found to have underage drinkers when the police raided several bars that night. The bar pled no contest to the fine and has agreed to purchase better ID scanning equipment. The bar may face further consequences from the city's Alcohol License Review Committee, who could withdraw the bar's liquor license. And now on to today's top stories. In the 1970s, movies like Enter the Dragon brought kung fu to the big screen, bringing fast-paced fight scenes to cities across America. They may also have been the reason why, in the 1970s, the city of Madison officially banned nunchucks. That could soon change, however, as city officials look for ways to clean up Madison's municipal code. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. 
1973, the film Enter the Dragon released in theaters, becoming one of the most influential martial arts movies of all time, eventually making its way into the Library of Congress in 2004. The poster for the movie sees martial arts star Bruce Lee standing front and center with a pair of nunchucks in his hands. Three years later, in 1976, the city of Madison passed an ordinance banning the possession of nunchucks. Now, a proposal going before the Common Council tomorrow night is looking to repeal that ban and once again allow nunchucks in Madison. That comes as city alders are looking to clean up outdated portions of the city's municipal code. The rule, which was passed in December of 1976 and is riddled with misspellings, bans the sale, purchase, and possession of nunchucks, two rods connected by a rope or chain, shurikens, a type of round throwing knife, and sukbai, a wood or metal rod. The penalty for owning one of these weapons is a $500 fine, and the weapons must be turned over to police to be destroyed. Marcy Kurtz with the city's attorney's office says that if the rule is repealed, nunchucks will be treated just like any other weapon. You could walk down the street holding a nunchuck. Definitely, you could do that. Could you take it into a school? Probably not. I don't know what the schools were. Could you use it to hit someone? No. I mean, it's, to me, these, these are just one type of weapons, and it's just depending on what the use is. We're not saying the actual possession is illegal now, but the use. You know, if you use it to batter someone, that's going to be a battery. If you use it, you know, to kill someone, that's going to be a homicide. So it's more of what the use of the weapon would be used for, for what the penalties would be versus just actually possessing it now. There have been efforts in recent months to clean up the city's municipal code and to remove outdated or unnecessary ordinances. These efforts have been largely led by now former District 15 Alder Grant Foster, who has, among other things, repealed laws outlawing trick riding on bikes, curfew hours, and public indecency. Kurt says that while the city attorney's office tries to go through and clean up the city's municipal code on a regular basis, sometimes they overlook something. In those cases, an alder can bring the issue to their attention and determine whether or not the rule should stay on the books. That's the case with Madison's nunchuck ban. The issue was brought forward by now former District 3 Alder Eric Paulson, who told the city's Public Safety Review Committee that the issue had been brought to him by a constituent. In this case, only one citation for nunchuck possession was issued by the Madison Police Department in the past five years, and that case was later dismissed. Kurt says that this is one of the things she looks for when cleaning up municipal code. We every year go through and do a cleanup of our ordinances and if anything comes to our notice then we just either remove it if it's not being used or make any changes that are requested by the alder. So we just always want to make sure that, you know, what ordinances we have on the books are accurate and up to date and being appropriately used. Madison is not the only town in Wisconsin to have a nunchuck ban on the books. About three dozen Wisconsin municipalities, from Menasha to Little Chute to Cross Plains, passed the same ordinance in the 70s. In fact, the ordinances are identical, right down to the spelling errors. The exact reason why Madison and so many other municipalities in Wisconsin banned nunchucks is unknown. Neither Paulson, Kurtz, nor the city's Public Safety Review Committee knew why it was enacted in the first place. 
John Rothschild, a former assistant city attorney who helped draft the ordinance, tells WORT that while he remembers drafting the ordinance, he can't remember why it was brought forward. The ban was originally brought forward by the city attorney's office and the Madison Police Department. The New York Times reported in 2019 that many states across the country banned nunchucks in the 1970s. Terry Park, a lecturer of Asian American Studies at the University of Maryland, told the Times that the bans were fueled by, quote, latent anti-Asian anxieties, end quote, surrounding kung fu movies. Both New York State and Arizona repealed bans on nunchucks in 2018 and 2019 after a federal judge ruled that the New York ban was unconstitutional and violated the Second Amendment. According to the New York Times, officials in Nassau County, New York, had prosecuted only three nunchuck possession cases between December of 2014 and January of 2017. The proposal to legalize nunchucks was approved by the Public Safety Review Committee earlier this month and goes before the full council for a final vote tomorrow night. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. It's been three years since Wisconsin's Public Service Commission signed off on a natural gas plant for the northwestern part of the state. But environmental advocates say a lot has changed since then, including the continued emergence of clean energy, energy sources and the rapidly growing cl- cl- climate crisis. Excuse me. One group said those factors should prompt regulators to reconsider the plan. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin regulators are being asked to take another look at previously approved plans for a proposed natural gas plant. An environmental group says changes in the energy sector and the evolving climate crisis are hard to ignore. In 2020, the Public Service Commission granted a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity for the Namaji Trail Energy Center in Superior, which is still navigating the permitting process. Elizabeth Ward of the Sierra Club's Wisconsin chapter says in the time since utilities submitted the plan, the electricity sector has seen greater expansion of cleaner sources, such as battery storage technology. She adds that federal incentives are now a game-changer, too. We know with the Inflation Reduction Act that there's a lot of money available to co-ops to build clean energy, so it's much better for the ratepayers to be building clean energy instead of the fossil plant. And she points to emerging research into natural gas production and the link to methane emissions. The commission says it's reviewing the Sierra Club's request. Dairyland Power Cooperative, a utility involved in the project, says the plant would be a flexible resource amid grid constraints and questions about alternative sources being able to fully replace retiring coal plants right now. More broadly, utilities have said natural gas facilities produce fewer emissions than coal plants and can serve as a bridge while they transition to carbon-free sources. But Ward contends the time for a bridge has passed. The U.N. has made it very clear that the decisions we make today will determine whether or not we're able to get a handle on climate change. But also the technology is here and that is being proven as we build more and more wind and solar and batteries. Last year, the EPA said an earlier review of the project didn't capture the full scope of the climate impact. Meanwhile, Dairyland Power says while it believes sources such as solar and battery storage have yet to become primary sources of energy, it is enthusiastic about exploring them. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Last Friday, the Madison Assessor's Office released their report on the city's property tax base for 2023. 
That report found that the average price for a single-family home in Madison is now over $424,000. To break down what these latest tax figures mean for both the city of Madison and its residents, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Michelle Drea, Scott West, and Megan Lukens with the city's assessor's office earlier today. Your report found that all in all, property values rose 14.4 percent from 2022 to 2023. Tell me a little bit about that, what that means, and if you know of any reasons of why property values rose like that. Well, I can speak about sort of the two sectors in our market. So our residential market, which is what you would imagine, the single-family homes, condominiums, um, that sector increased 12.9% in the past year. And that's typically we have a robust market, so our assessments are performing, they're underperforming versus sale prices. So we're kind of catching up to what the market is. And that we've seen for the past few years, and that has continued The only difference, I think, between perhaps 2023 and 2022 is the inventory has decreased even more. So the lack of inventory in the housing stock has uh, impacted sale prices as well. On the commercial side, we saw a 16.8% increase in value, and that was partially due to we shifted leasehold improvement value which was considered to be personal property, Um, we shifted that value to real estate. So that accounted for some of that increase. We also had the town of Madison annexation increase. And also we had, I think anybody who lives in the city is aware of all of the incoming construction. So all of the new construction, all the um, kind of booming multifamily housing market is another aspect to the commercial base increasing. And now, while housing prices went up across the entire city there, are there areas of the city that saw especially higher or lower growth than others? We did have a handful of areas that were over 20%. I'm just taking a look right now. We had assessment area 49, which is Cherokee, went up 21%. And we had Winona, Uh, which is assessment area 78, go up 20.6%. And the highest was Lake Edge, and that is area 34, and that went up 22.8%. So those are highs on average. I think most of the assessment areas trends were somewhere between 11 and 18%. Is that right, Scott? Correct. And now the report also sort of looked into the personal property assessments, and they found that that dropped by almost 24% last year. Uh, how, how do you determine what local personal property values are, and what, what does that sort of decrease sort of tell us compared to the rise in property values? What, is there sort of a connection there? Well, the connection would be that we took the leasehold improvement value, which from an assessment perspective, so those constant property assessment manual establishes, that assessors can carry leasehold improvements on either personal property, their personal property role or the real estate role. And we did a review of how we were classifying various items of personal or classes of personal property last year and determined that it was more appropriate for us to carry those leasehold improvements on the real estate side rather than personal property. So that's the primary reason for that shift that you see. I was a I think about $160 million that shifted, give or take, from our personal property role to our real estate role. 
And so then what is all included in the personal property assessments? Is uh, what, what sort of included under that umbrella? Sure, we have furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And this is, keep in mind, this is for businesses, not, not single-family homes. Um, so furnitures, furniture, fixtures, and equipment, signs. Um, uh, multifunction, fax, copiers, telephone lines. So sort of the, the materials and the property that you use in the course of your business that is not part of any inventory of your business. And one thing to note, the personal property is different from the real estate and that the business owners self-report that information to us. And now moving on to, you mentioned new construction there. What does the report say about new construction in Madison? Uh, does, does the report sort of go into how many housing units are being built? And if so, what kind of housing is being built? We don't have that level of detail on a report. I can just give you a number. So new construction accounted for $866 million this year. And how does that compare to, to other years? Um, it broke a record. This is the highest year. And, and then what does all of this mean for the, the city of Madison itself? What does this mean for uh, the city's finances? Well, it does mean that, we, you know, the levy will be able to increase. That's solely driven by the new construction number. Um, I think my perspective is that we're seeing a very healthy, robust economy that's now showing to be sustainable year over year. We were having some concerns on the residential side about potential bubble markets where the lack of inventory might be overly informing sales prices or influencing sale prices. As we see this level of I guess, robustness year over year, I think that concern is waning a little bit. Nevertheless, we were still pretty cautious in how we applied the sales data for our trends for 2023. Um, So I think the general picture is a robust economy that is showing itself to be sustainable. The growth factor is really what you'd want to see year over year. It's pretty consistent on the upward trend and I think for the levy itself, for the city, that means that the levy can increase this year because the new construction numbers were higher. And then what does all of this mean for the residents of Madison, not only the the homeowners who are owning these properties that are going up in value, but for, let's say, renters and people like that? Well, it's difficult to say. I think the, the lack or the dearth of housing, so we have our supply and demand issue, it certainly impacts renters. Um, you have a far higher demand than stock available, which can increase prices. Um, I think contextually it's important to understand that while we may see an upswing in rents, when you put it in the context of a nationwide lens, we still have lower rents than other jurisdictions across the country. So um, while we're seeing an upswing, we're still not in the highest or higher percentiles of what rents are being charged in similarly sized jurisdictions or others across the nation. Um, So I think bringing online more multifamily housing is great and that will have a good uh, impact for renters. That means that we're addressing the supply and demand issue. Affordable housing is certainly something that the mayor's office is a proponent of and that um, we're hoping to see more and more developments along that line. Um, But in general, I think the growth is a good sign. Did you two have anything to add? I was just going to say we continue to see the tax base increase 
year on year. So. Yeah, in a pretty consistent way. So I don't think um, we're not seeing any big jumps that aren't to then in the in the subsequent year also reflected. So it's kind of this consistent growth that to me indicates sustainability. Do any of you just have any final thoughts that on this report that you would like to share with me? Final thoughts are, I think, is overall really good news. You know, I think that it's a reflection of a strong economy that's on a sustainable growth rate. We're bringing on more and more housing, which I think will address the housing stock issues. And it's good to be a place that people want to move. I've been talking with Michelle Drea, Scott West, and Megan Lukens with the City Assessor's Office about the city's 2023 property tax base. You can find the full report online at the City of Madison Assessor's website. Thank you all of you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan to take a look at what's happening this week in city and county government. This week on Forward Lookout, Dane County takes a look at salvage yards, and Madison gets an early start in preparing for budget season. Joining us now is Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com to guide us through what's happening this week in local government. Hi, Brenda. Hey, Dylan. So we'll start with Dane County. And yeah, hey, we're we're getting stuff done this week in local government. So Monday night we have Personnel and Finance Committee, right? That's already in progress. Yep, it's going to be a short meeting. They're going to be talking about an equity food program for 2023, as well as the legislative agenda. You'll see that on lots of agendas this week and probably next week. Um, and right after that, they're also going to have a subcommittee meeting of the tax deed subcommittee. So there's four properties that they're going to sell because people didn't pay their taxes. Okay. Well, that's what happens, I guess, right? Yeah, and they do have a pretty long process. It takes about three years, I think, before it gets to that point. So... Usually it's people who have been working at it. All right. Well, let's move on to the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, and that meets at 530 on Tuesday. That meeting, um, they are going to be uh, looking at the jail. So they're amending the capital budget to provide funding for the jail consolidation project. So we'll see if the if that uh, compromise that has been reached is, holds up or not. Um, they're also getting two presentations, one from the Department of Corrections Capital Budget Proposal and Youth Justice, as well as a Deferred Prosecution Program data. So they're getting those two presentations, and then they'll also be talking about that legislative agenda. Just to go back to the jail, I thought that big vote was over, but it's uh, there's probably several votes to come, right? Yeah, I think that there's, uh, you know, cleanup and, and things that, you know, they may make a decision, but then they have to, like, make sure that they have the budget correct and they have, you know, other steps that they have to take, so... Zoning and Land Regulation Committee, anything exciting there? 6.30 on Tuesday? They do have a longer than usual agenda, and it is uh, got some more interesting things than usual. Um, there is a communication tower that's being reconsidered that's out in the town of Pleasant Springs. Um, they also have an auto salvage yard business and a um, non-metallic mineral extraction operation, which is a, a 
a quarry or a mine. Um, and then they have a couple um, Airbnb um, type properties that they're going to approve. So usually it's a lot of things that are more, more probably not of interest, but the, this one's a little bit more interesting. Yeah, and if uh, Salvage Yard opened up next door, you'd be pretty interested, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, I don't see that happening in your neighborhood, but maybe... Probably uh... not. <laughs> maybe the communications tower. <laughs> okay, what about uh, on Wednesday or on Thursday, we have Health and Human Needs, and that will be virtual as well as uh, in-person meeting at the City County Building. So what's Health and Human Needs up to? They're also going to be talking about their legislative priorities, and they actually have a list of things that they want to include. So expanding mental health and addiction care, reproductive rights, gender affirming care, uh, Medicaid and Medicare for all, expanding affordable housing and tenants' rights. So um, that's what they have listed as their potential legislative priorities for the lobbyists for the county up at the state capitol. So um, that might be an interesting list to some folks. Um, and then most of the other things are accepting funds um, or donations. And then they have a bunch of contracts that, that will need amendments or that they are approving. Well, let's move on to the city of Madison happening. Might, might be over, but maybe still in progress. There was a virtual meeting of the Finance Committee at 430. So that has some new members and the new city council sworn in and everything. So we're, we're back to the usual business, correct? Yeah, and um, it's interesting because the city council met last week and they meet again next week and they're also meeting this week. So most of the things that are on the finance committee are the majority of the things that are also on the city council meeting on Tuesday. Okay, well, let's talk about both of them then. Uh, well, this also goes for the council. There is a double fill of a deputy mayor position in the mayor's office. There's a couple of folks there that are having some medical issues. So they're looking to solve that problem there. And then they also have... Um, Lots of TIF districts and things that they're doing there, keeping one open to get that affordable housing funding that they can get. They're also closing two of them, number 47 at Silicon Prairie and number 29 at Allied Duns Marsh. Um, they're going to be looking at um, the how, what, how are they going to continue to have their meetings? Are they going to be hybrid meetings? Are they going to be in person? Are they going to be just um, uh, virtual? Um, they're also looking at the 2024 budget calendar and process overview. Uh, the capital budgets were due from the departments already last Friday. Sounds crazy that it's April and the and budgets are already due for next year, but that is true. And then there's a few other things um, that may be of interest, but it's mostly, um, uh, I would say, contract-related things where there's money going out to various contractors for various services that the, the city has been talking about for a while. All right. On, um, also on Monday, we have the Plan Commission. Um, anything, any big developments that people need to keep their eye on? There's a couple of projects. One's on Burt Sienna Drive, um, also at East Park Boulevard, and then some stuff at East Town and Tree Lane. And then there's um, several things that have to do with Acacia Ridge subdivision. Um, and that's mostly single family housing and some duplexes out there. Wow. I will, so, hey, don't say we don't build single family homes in Madison, right? Right. <laughs> Well, there it is right there in black ink. Well, what else should we talk about? How about urban design on Wednesday at 4.30 since we're talking about developments? Yeah, urban design has a big project, 325, 27, 29, and 31 East Wilson Street. Um, so, yep, there's a project there as well as 702 North Midvale. That's out um, by Hilldale. And then there's some projects again on Wilson Street and 1625 Northport Drive. Project on Sherman Avenue, as well as the 400 block of West Johnson and the 200 block of Bassett 
in the 400 block of West Dayton. That's all one project. <laughs> um, so there's a new student housing project going up there. Finally, Brenda, let's talk about what's happening on Thursday at 5 p.m. It's the Housing Strategy Committee, and that's a virtual meeting. They're getting a couple, um, some updates and reports from staff um, that is going to include recommendations about displacement and segregation in the city of Madison. So that may be of interest to some folks. And then a little bit more technical, they are looking at dissolving three committees and making it into one. And the committees would be the Tenant Landlord Issues Committee, this committee, the Housing Strategy Committee, as well as the City County Homeless Issues Committee. Um, and that's a proposal by some of the elders. I'm not sure that the city staff and others think it's such a great idea. So it'll be interesting to see how that conversation goes. And if you'd like to know more about what's happening in Dane County and Madison City Government this week, you can head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you so much for taking time to talk it over with us. You're welcome. This Friday is the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. Allegedly launched to, quote, protect American lives, the real reason was to continue the century-old U.S. economic and military domination over the region. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. Today's intro is from a Phil Oaks protest song opposing the invasion. Traitors will pretend that it's getting near the end When it's just beginning The Marines have landed on the shores of Santo Domingo This Friday, April 28th, is the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. Initially, 400 Marines landed, but that eventually became 42,000, supposedly to protect American lives, but really to restore a dictatorship to continue U.S. economic domination, first started in 1906. The order came from President Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, and ran concurrently with the initial buildup in Vietnam. It came amidst heightening Cold War tensions. LBJ was fearful of another Cuba. Johnson listened to people in the U.S. Embassy that said a U.S. invasion was necessary to protect American lives. By the end of the invasion, more than 3,000 Dominicans and 31 Americans had been killed. This was part of the hundred years of U.S. economic and military domination across the region. The U.S. had dominated Dominican affairs since 1906 when the two countries signed a 50-year treaty where the U.S. took over the profitable customs department in exchange for buying up the country's debt. The U.S. first invaded the Dominican Republic in 1916 following internal disorder, occupying the country until 1924 when a constitutional government took over. In 1930, the U.S. trained General Rafael Trujillo overthrew the government. Trujillo used the U.S.-trained National Guard to assassinate his enemies and enrich himself, but he was an anti-communist. As President Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of State, Cordell Hall, famously said of Trujillo, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Trujillo had massacred Haitians along his border and had a long record of plots against other countries. But in 1960, Trujillo had gone too far. His agents attempted to assassinate the Venezuelan president 
president. Later that year, he legalized the Communist Party and attempted to establish close political relations with the Soviet bloc. He became expendable. The Organization of American States, OAS, declared sanctions on the Dominican Republic. The U.S. severed diplomatic relations, suspended most exports, and vastly reduced importation of Dominican sugar, its major export. Trujillo's assassination occurred on May 30, 1961, with likely U.S. complicity. The U.S. Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, opposed efforts by a pro-Trujillo military faction led by his son to reassert dictatorial domination, and a 14-vessel U.S. Naval Task Force arrived within sight of the capital. Trujillo's son and his uncles fled the country with $200 million from the Dominican Treasury. A democratically elected leftist writer, Juan Bosch, became president in February of 1963, in the first free election in 30 years. Bosch supported labor unions, peasant movements, agricultural reform, and the education of all Dominicans. The military refused to accept their loss of control over the country's resources, particularly its sugar and mineral deposits. They staged a coup seven months later. On April 24, 1965, a pro-Bosch civilian-led revolt broke out in the capital. The military responded with tank assaults and bombing runs, but the rebels held their positions. By the third day, the armed civilians outnumbered the military. Radio Santo Domingo, now under rebel control, began to call for more violent actions. On April 28th, Johnson sent in the Marines. We don't propose to sit here in a rocking chair with our hands folded and let the communists set up any government in the Western Hemisphere, he said. Johnson made exaggerated claims to gain U.S. public support, saying 1,500 innocent people were murdered and shot and their heads cut off, and six Latin American embassies were violated and fired upon over a period of four days before he went in. Johnson claimed 1,000 American men, women, and children had pleaded for intervention. William Fulbright, Arkansas Democrat, segregationist, and Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair, called out Johnson's lies on the Senate floor. Johnson's intervention was marred by a lack of candor and by misinformation. The former is illustrated by official assertions that the U.S. military intervention was primarily for the purpose of saving American lives, and the latter is illustrated by exaggerated reports of massacres by the rebels, reports no one has been able to verify. But by then, the damage had been done. The civilian rebellion was crushed. Bosch lost the next election to the U.S.-backed Joaquin Balacker, largely through U.S. intimidation. After Balacker's election, most of the nation's minerals and sugar again flowed to the U.S., enriching U.S. businesses. His 30-year rule was marked by corruption and fraud. Wages plummeted, unions were dismantled, inflation soared, and unemployment hovered around 30%. In 1996, democratic elections were finally held. But today, an oligarchy still dominates the nation, and U.S. businesses still benefit. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. After a stint of warm weather earlier this month, this past weekend saw plenty of cold weather. Weather producer Caitlin Davis breaks down what's to come over the coming days. A chilly start to the week in Madison should be making way for a warmer second half of the week. Current temperatures in Madison are sitting just below 50 degrees with partly sunny skies. Winds are currently blowing out 4 miles per hour and humidity is sitting around 36%. A chance for some rain is possible tonight, and skies will turn cloudy into the evening. 
Temperatures overnight are looking to drop down into the low 30s with a continued chance of rain. A year ago today, we felt a high of 70 degrees and we were a lot cooler than we were this time last year. The historical average for April 24th in Madison is 60.5 degrees, so we are stuck at much lower temperatures so far this April. If you suddenly added a pack of tissues to your backpack or purse, are having headaches, or just don't feel well in general, you may be a victim to seasonal allergies. Tree pollen counts have been in the high category for the last few days and still are today. Grass pollen is in the low category, while ragweed is in the none category. Allergies counts are looking to continue in those same categories for the next few days. If you don't suffer from allergies, it is possible to be getting sick with all the weather changes as well. Certain bacteria thrive in different weather conditions, and with the weather changing so much, it is possible that you may have caught something. Allergies or sickness, be sure to take care of yourself so you can enjoy the nice upcoming weather. Tomorrow morning, we may be seeing some lingering precipitation in the area still. Early in the morning, skies will be cloudy up until around 7 a.m., but we will be seeing breaks in the clouds from the sun. Tomorrow is looking to reach a high of 51 degrees with a UV index of 5. Winds will be light and variable around 5 to 10 miles per hour, and humidity will be in the mid-levels. Tomorrow night is looking to cool down quite a bit, dropping down into the very low 30s with cloudy skies and light and variable winds. If you have been hearing the chirping of birds way more than you usually do, here's why. Spring is the month where baby birds learn to sing. And you may wonder, aren't they able to sing when they're born? That is true, but the spring season is when they learn to sing the specific song within their species. So if you hear the birds being extra loud, just know that there are some baby birds learning how to sing their song. Wednesday is looking to be a bit nicer with a high temperature looking to reach the mid-50s. The morning is looking to have mostly sunny skies, but clouds will be present more later in the day. Lane variable winds are to be expected and a UV is looking to reach 6. Humidity is staying in the 40th percentile during the day and overnight on Wednesday, temperatures are looking to drop yet again about 20 degrees. Light and variable winds are looking to continue with cloudy skies. And here it is, the nice pop of weather for this week. If you're a student who's graduating this spring, May 12th to 13th, this Thursday is looking to be a great day to take graduation photos. Temperatures are looking to reach the mid-60s on Thursday with partly sunny skies, which means you don't have to squint as much when taking pictures. Winds are looking to be variable, and as of now, there's no chance for precipitation. The UV on Thursday is looking to reach 7, and humidity is staying low. Thursday night is looking to drop over 20 degrees again, and temperatures are looking to be in the low to mid-40s. Light variable winds and cloudy skies are looking to stick overnight. Although you may want to jump into the lakes while the temperatures are heating up, you probably want to refrain from doing so. Water temperatures are still very cold, Lake Mendota is sitting at 39.6 degrees. So although it may seem like a nice way to cool off, you may shock your body when jumping into the frigid lake. Extremely cold water temperatures are anything below 50 degrees, so the lake is in this category right now. Ideal water temperatures are around 72 degrees, so if you're looking to cool off, instead of going to the lake, try walking around State Street and shopping at the local businesses while enjoying the AC. That's a good way to cool off. Speaking of cooling off, Friday is looking to cool down quite a bit, not bringing the best weather conditions. Friday is looking to reach a high of 63 degrees, but skies will be mostly cloudy with a chance of some rain showers. Winds will be blowing between 5 to 10 miles per hour with even higher wind gusts. Overnight on Friday, we are looking to see the same patterns, cloudy and rainy with high winds. 
temperatures are looking to drop down into the low 30s. This same continued pattern of rain is unfortunately looking to stick into the weekend as well. Right now, looking to be rainy all the way up until Tuesday of next week. But after that, nice weather should break away. So be sure to stay tuned next week for some nice weather. You may not like the rain, but you sure do know the saying. April showers bring May flowers with hopeful thinking for warmer weather in May and some flowers here in Madison for WORT News. I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. First is Showing Up, a mediocre movie from the Wisconsin Film Festival. Then a much better film on the small screen, Rye Lane, a British indie rom-com that just started playing on Hulu. I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. My show's open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show too, you know. You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. That was a clip from the trailer for Showing Up, directed by Kelly Reichert. I saw it as part of the Wisconsin Film Festival at the Marquee Cinema at Union South, and it was packed. The movie started about 25 minutes late. We were kept in the lobby because the prior movie went over its time with the Q&A afterwards. As it turned out, it wasn't really worth the wait. This was a quiet, slice-of-life movie that never really grabbed me. The cast is fine, and the setting is well drawn out. But nothing much happens, and not much seems to really be at stake either. The film stars a glam-down Michelle Williams as Lizzie, a sculptor of small ceramic figures of women. Lizzie is busy after work getting ready to show her figures. For her day job, she works at a modest Portland art school run by her mom, Jean Marianne Plunkett. Her landlady and friend, Joe Hong Cha, uh, is getting ready for two shows, which she admits is nuts. She is much too busy to take care of Lizzie's broken water heater, which has been out for two weeks. Lizzie is stressed out in a mainly low-key way about her show and the usual quirky, dysfunctional family dynamics. Her dad, Bill, is played by the great Judd Hirsch. Bill is divorced from Lizzie's mom and seems content in his retirement. Lizzie is worried about him. A symptom of her concern, maybe not the cause, is a couple of near strangers sponging off her dad. Meanwhile, her brother Sean seems a little unhinged and maybe shouldn't be living alone. Oh, and there's an injured pigeon. There's more, but you get the general idea. I understand there's supposed to be some symbolic meditation on the meaning of life here, but none of the characters really grab me that much to make me really care or feel that much invested in the story. This is not really the fault of the actors who all do a fine job, especially Williams and Hirsch. I really enjoyed an earlier 2019 indie film by Reichart, First Cow, set in the northwest of the 1820s. Not a lot happened in that film either, but more was at stake for the main characters, who somehow had a more interesting story than this contemporary one about Portland-area artists. I look forward to seeing future Reinhardt work, but can't recommend this movie. Now for a lighthearted movie from Over the Pond. So, what happened? She cheated on me with my best friend. You cheated on Tom? With him? Oh, that hurts a little bit. I mean, I get it. The arms are nice, but... Why do you even talk about Are you just going to sit there and uh, say that to me? Well, she said my arms are nice. That was a clip from the trailer for Rye Lane by first-time director Rain Allen Miller. <laughs> 
This is a sweet rom-com about 20-somethings in Peckham, South London. Peckham is the most diverse neighborhood in London, and the film makes it look like an inviting place of shops, restaurants, and fascinating people. Our two principals meet cute. Yes, Vivian Opera is in the bathroom when she hears someone crying in the next stall and calls out sort of sympathetically to Dom, David Johnson. Dom belatedly realizes he is in a unisex bathroom. Yes exits first, and Dom composes himself and enters the art gallery where a self-absorbed friend is showing his wares and trying to sell his artwork. Yaz recognizes Dom by his bright converse kicks. She saw in the bathroom and, taking pity on him, starts up a conversation. Soon Yaz and Dom are talking about their respective breakups and bonding. Their mutual attraction is evident from the start. Dom is off to a meeting to talk it over with his ex and his former best mate. Dom broke up with her when he saw she was cheating on him in a video accidentally sent to his phone. They had been going out for six years. The breakup happened three months ago, but he is still broken up by it. Witness the crying bathroom scene. Yes, by contrast, seems to have taken her breakup better, claiming it was her idea, and what she really misses is an album she failed to grab when she moved out. Dom is doing okay financially. He says he's an accountant and always wanted to be one since he was a kid. Yaz is struggling to pay the bills while trying to get a job as a costume designer in films. The more outgoing Yaz amusingly rescues Dom from his miserable meeting by claiming to be his new girlfriend, and they end up spending the day together. Dom agrees to help Yaz get her record back, and we go on a winding, amusing tour of the neighborhood, its karaoke bars and restaurants and parties. All in all, a warm enjoyable rom-com with two very likable leads, Opero and Johnson. I look forward to seeing Rain Allen Miller's future efforts. This movie was featured at this year's Sundance Film Festival and just started streaming on Hulu. It's well worth checking out. I found having the subtitles on helpful because of the sometimes thick British accent. It was also fun to see British actors of African descent do a fine job in a movie genre usually given over to white people. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Your captain and mine, Victor Calzoni, engineered the show. Nate Wege helped produce this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.